we see that there's this possibility. It engenders this life-giving and affirming thing, which tells us that, of course, we know that as Black people, we're not reducible to the ideas that our society thrusts us into. What I see here is possibility, even as I see this possible eclipsing of possibility as this young man is being approached by these, these officers. Welcome to Art is Human Nature, a podcast where art meets the expert, a podcast where I, the artist, speak with people who know a lot about the ideas I try to capture in my work. I'm your host, Alexander Robinson. So I am here with Robin Maynard, who is a brilliant writer, award-winning author, activist, and educator. How are you, Robin? I am doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited. Before we get into this, I just want to like speak to, I guess, the importance for me and I guess for this podcast to have you on the show. But essentially, I've lived in Toronto my whole life and from elementary school to high school. Slavery in Canada was never mentioned. Viola Desmond was never mentioned. Africville was never mentioned. Queen's University banning Black students from enrolling in its medical schools in 1918 was never mentioned. And for a long time, I just thought Black history was something that didn't exist here. And that probably sounds like (laughs) silly, but I just like I was never exposed to any of those things, you know, whether it was, um, you know, the the trials and tribulations faced by black Canadians or even moments of resilience. Um, I was never taught any of that stuff. And recently, as I've gotten older, I've decided to take on, you know, like going out of my way to learn that history myself. And in you know this time of growth for myself you and your work has been so so pivotal and essential to that so yeah i just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and agreeing to speak with me today it really means a lot thank you so much for having me and for your kind words and i you know i just really want to echo like this idea of not being aware of black history in this country is really not something that comes from personal failings uh, on behalf of any particular Black person who was raised here, because our histories, of course, have been invisibilized, have been erased, have been actively negated, kept out of curriculums, pushed out of curriculums, been made inaccessible to us. So I think it's really important just to center the fact that, you know, we all, uh, so many of us really long for that knowledge. And it's something that has been actively suppressed. It's not just something that we happen to not know growing up Black in this country. So I just wanted to really lift up, um, lift that up and to thank you for your work and to thank you for this podcast and for your art and for everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to ask, how did you get on this path? Did you always want to be a writer? Did you always know you wanted to, you know, like be involved with the community and things of that nature? Um, I love this question. And I was just thinking about this recently. This past fall and winter, especially, I've been back up to something that is one of the ways that I really got into writing, which is just making resources, making guides. I worked on a Police Free Futures in Canada guide. I'm just finishing up one with my Building the World We Want political education series that is, What is Prison Abolition in Canada? And I'm remembering that resource making 
is sort of one of these very pragmatic ways that I got into writing, that I got into writing as a way of doing movement work, as a way of, you know, helping make sense of things like systemic racism, like the persistent anti-blackness in our society, of making sense of thinking, like around abolition, around what freedom could mean. So for me, writing has always been a kind of political education not only for help lifting up, you know, the, and guiding along others, whether it's oriented towards young people, whether it's oriented towards young activists, but also for myself, right? It often begins before putting something down in writing. I always want to delve extensively into genealogies of who's been doing this thinking, who's been doing this work, who's been making it possible. So writing for me when I was much younger and even in the present moment, it starts with seeking the answer to a question rather than presuming an answer. So it's asking the hows and the whys of, you know, the present that we find ourselves in today. So writing is reading and thinking. And this is something that is often, you know, since I've been really young has been just one way of approaching the world and of making sense of the world. I also think that for me, writing has often been a way of channeling anger, right? Of channeling anger in a way that is productive, of channeling anger in a way that where it doesn't just live inside your body and slowly, you know, turn into all the things that kill us as Black people so much younger, right? High blood pressure and all of this, right? As a way of channeling that outward. So, you know, Audre Lorde writes, I think, really beautifully about the way that Black women experience anger, how it's not our rage, she says, that's destroying rainforests, that's murdering children. But at the same time, of course, we have this anger, this very justified anger at ongoing egregious um, injustice of anti-black racism of ongoing misogyny noir that I think really urgently <laughs> demands that like rather than it totally overflowing or taking over that it needs to be channeled outward um, but with intention. So it's always been a way for me to turn that anger into something that is useful, <laughs> that is hopefully helpful for others as well, but at least fundamentally is also an exercise for myself in just a way of externalizing, I think, and again, um, make, making sense of what otherwise I think you know, you'd spoken, for example, about feeling bad about not knowing this, uh, the reality that black people are facing in this country. And I think that if we don't understand that what is happening is systemic, that what is happening is a certain kind of organized violence, a certain kind of organized abandonment, then we tend to put that as if it's something that is our fault, as if it's something that is an individual failing. So I think being able to channel to the systemic ways that injustice is enacted on our, our lives as black people, that is something that I find really uh, again, something that helps us like manage the anger at injustice in a way of understanding it as structural, because then, of course, there's something to do, which, of course, is join into this broader movement of people who have always been organizing and organizing collectively against ongoing and egregious injustice, right? So something more that I've been thinking as a writer in more recent years is moving into this more vulnerable space as well, using more of a personal, uh, using it as a way to think through myself as, you know, as a person, as an individual, as a person who feels, as a person who uh, is living. So this new work that I'm working on um, with Leanne Simpson, Rehearsals for Living, is sort of this exercise in using a personal voice, which I think is something I've come to later in my own uh, writing career. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Um, it's an ongoing path, I guess, is one way of answering this question, that I feel like the path feels just as fresh and feels just as new. I feel like almost just as afraid every time I try to, every time I start a new project as well. So I think it's also just this like way of moving past um, the fear of vulnerability that writing can be and just sort of like tricking yourself or forcing yourself into, into this process that I think is like a very generative process of just engaging with the world uh, around us. And yeah, like writing is 
to me something that is an essential part of living that helps me. Yeah, I don't think I could. I don't think I could live my life without without it. It's like a habit. It's like one of my appendages at this point. Wow, you said a lot of really interesting things. And one thing I found、um, especially fascinating is you know what you were saying about that kind of like anger and frustration and being able to channel that you know into something. And I think it's you know it's very important. I think. I think in general, like most of us, require like some sort of outlet, you know, for the things we deal with. But I think, especially Black people, you know, we with all the things that happen, like we really need an outlet to get that, you know, get those emotions and get those thoughts out. But I wanted to also ask you, and this is something that I've thought about a lot. But for you, what does it mean to be an activist? Do you think it's a title? That needs to be earned, or you know, like where do you stand with um with that title? I think that activism. I think that's a great question. First of all, I think that activism is. I like to think about it as sort of a like a kaleidoscopic category. I think there's a lot of things that uh that are part of activism that don't always get uh categorized as so. So I would say if I had to give a broad definition, I would say that it's a challenging of the status quo, a challenging of the normalized and routinized ways that our society renders some people in, you know,、uh, slave-based and set and settler colonial societies like Canada, especially Black and Indigenous people, as disposable, as exploitable, as vulnerable to death.、Um, Ruthie Gilmore called, describes it as being vulnerable to premature death. It's a way of refusing the consensus that. Consigns particular lives to、uh, living, to living in ways that are that come with all kinds of exposure to harm. So, but I also think that activism, to me, it can sometimes just be in you know these sort of informal or organic moments of revolt that happen on street corners after you know horrific acts of police violence. It can be these these moments of outrage that are not always channeled into then a more organized response. But I think that there is a certain kinds of way of thinking about maybe activism in a more conventional sense as something that is. You know, also that there's something that becomes perhaps more organized that involves a certain amount of planning. And as Maryam Kaba often says, quoting her father, "Everything worth doing is done with other people." So I think it can be something. Some of the more formal ways that we think about what activism is, you know, organizing a tent city outside of police headquarters, like BLMTO, for example, right? Like I think that's a really classic example of what it means to say, like, we are going to refuse the violence of the state. We're going to do so collectively as Black people. We're going to do so with demands for a dramatic transformation of our society, right? I think that's something that it really. It's emblematic of what organizing can be, but I also think that you know, if I look at the work of Charlene Grant and Carrie Daniels and Claudette Rutherford,、uh, you know, of Parents for Black Children, for example, who came together, just refusing the treatment of their of black kids in their schools, that came together, organizing meetings with other black parents that have since you know really come together to actually say there are going to be no more police in schools in the Peel region, right? I think that that's an incredible example of organizing. That's something that's like local. That doesn't necessarily involve always the traditional sort of like picket or the traditional,、um, you know, on the on the streets sort of very visual <laughs> version of what organizing can be. But it is people coming together. It's people refusing a certain kind of violence. In this case, you know, against black children and saying that we can build something else. I think it's activism when it's sort of at its most beautiful and at its most generative is also offering us a different way to think about what society could be. 
It's about creating moments that show us what else is possible, ways of showing us how else Black children could be treated, ways of showing us what the world could look like if not for policing, if not for Black people being continuously murdered by the state, right? So I think that a lot of what activism can be, could be, should be, is about that what else and always thinking about what else is possible if not for this. That's a great answer. Wow. Yeah, definitely a lot to think about. That's great. I also wanted to ask for you, what does it mean to be a Black Canadian? You know, like when when you hear those words, you know, like what does it make you think of? And, you know, like just what does that mean to you? Sure. So I was thinking, I'm thinking about this question a little bit because to me, I don't necessarily use the words of Black Canadian. And I think that's because I don't think that as Black people, we can ever be Canadians, nor do I think we should ever aspire to be Canadians in this one way, right? I think that the idea of belonging as a Canadian citizenship is something that is reliant on, you know, settler colonialism and genocide and as an ongoing practice, it's reliant on a kind of racialized subjugation that includes our racialized subjugation, right? Especially living under racial capitalism, which we do. So I think that, you know, even aspiring to be, for example, a Black Canadian puts a particular ask on the nation state for something like equality. And what does equality mean in a society that's based on uh, racial violence, in a society that's based on stolen um, resources from Indigenous peoples here, as well as, of course, uh, ongoing stolen resources from people all across the African continent, the Caribbean, and more broadly around the world. So I think there's something, you know, that tells me that we can be Black in Canada But being Black Canadians is not necessarily something that I even consider aspirational. I also don't think that it's necessarily possible anyways, right? Which I think is something that we can think of as generative rather than something um, that we need to think about that would make us despondent. But I think that impossibility is captured really well. Um, I often think with this Norbessi Philip quote, and I'm paraphrasing her, but she she writes um, in one of her more recent works, she's writing about uh, those middle-class blacks who moved, um, you know, to the suburbs, buying homes and cars uh, to, to just be as Canadian as their neighbors. But they learned how just just how Canadian they are when the police began shooting their kids in the street like dogs, she says, right? So I think that it shows us that even when black people get those signifiers of middle-class life, get those signifiers of you know, technically belonging to the nation of Canadian citizenship that we're still disposable, that we're still living in an anti-Black country, right? So I think that shows us that this idea of being Canadian necessarily excludes us. But I also think that that allows us to think about what other kinds of belonging there are, right? And this is something that I think about often um, with, with Leanne Simpson to say, like, what does it mean for Black people, for Indigenous people to reject the idea of Canada and to say that we could think about freedom on Turtle Island in different ways, without necessarily an allegiance uh, to Canada, but instead with an allegiance to liberation, to building collective futures that are based in abundance rather than, you know, rather than the structures that we have today. So I guess that's me trying to answer that question in a way that's not pessimistic, but is not optimistic about what it means to be a Black Canadian. Because I think what it means to be Black in Canada is to live in the constant and ongoing legacy of slavery, is to be vulnerable to violence uh, of law enforcement, to ongoing surveillance and policing, is to be pushed out of school, is to be surveilled in school, is to have, you know, 
is to be if you don't have your Canadian citizenship under constant threat of possible deportation and detention, especially because of the way that we know that black people specifically are profiled. It means to have your family vulnerable to temporary or permanent separation by the state in terms of child welfare, means being kept out of most well-paying or unionized work. So I think that's what it means to be black in Canada. But of course, it also means to be part of a long and radical tradition of rebellion, of resistance, of organized and unorganized refusal of life building, of incredible, um, you know, diasporic culture, whether that's whether we're coming from, you know, the wide array of nations on the African continent, the Caribbean, um, all of the black people that live across the Americas, right? So it's also to be part of a really rich and extremely, again, kaleidoscopic sort of tradition uh, of life making as well. So I think those are sort of three ways that I could answer your question. Wow, you like you put that in, in such a great way. Yeah, like the idea that like it isn't necessarily something to aspire to. That's great. I'm going to be thinking about that for for a long time. And um, I'm sure like anyone who listens to this, that's going to really resonate with them as well. So like I had mentioned at the beginning, um, I've kind of been, you know, I've started kind of like this journey of uh, self-discovery and um, just trying to learn more about myself, you know, like history. And a big part of that is um, has been, you know, reading your book. And there have been like, I have like so many like sticky notes in the book and all these notes taken. There's been so many parts of your book that really stuck with me. But I wanted to um, hone in on a particular part of the book specifically. And there's this line and you get in the book, like you get into more detail um, following this. But I wanted to um, hone in on this line where um, in the book it says profiling is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Could you elaborate on um, that line and the implications of it? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. And thank you. The idea of a book filled with sticky notes makes me so happy because that is just how I read my bookshelves are ridiculous um, because of that. I think it's like such an exciting way to read because you just keep on making links. It's like... uh, Anyways, so thank you for sharing that with me. So the idea of profiling as a self-fulfilling prophecy is something that I think is was really crucial for uh, thinking through for thinking through the book. I in that in that section, I'm thinking also with you know the great philosopher Lewis Gordon, who's writing uh, "I Am Crime," right? And that's not to say that black people are actually criminal, but he's writing about the positioning of black people as being inherently and already and always associated with crime. And Fanon talks about this idea as well of black people as being phobogenic objects, as being, you know, fulfilling the role of terror in a white supremacist society, right? So the idea that attached to our very bodies, attached to our very presence is already this idea of criminality. And therefore, of course, crime, because it's associated with blackness, I think many of us would argue, is something that's seen as associated with violence, with danger, even though technically, of course, crime is like the breaking of laws, right? Which is something that happens across all parts of our society, something that's regular, you know, people crossing the street and jaywalking. Well, you don't consider everyone who breaks uh, the law as criminal because crime is wedded to blackness. The profile of a of somebody who commits a crime of a so-called, of a quote-unquote criminal is black, right? And this is something that has a long historical legacy, which is part of what the work of Policing Black Lives is really tracing, tracing the ways that, you know, some of the first criminalization of black people's movement through public space, if we're thinking with Charmaine Nelson, is that of the, the Fugitive Slave Ad, right? Where black people were seen as always already possibly criminal because we were seen as possibly having liberated ourselves from enslavement, right? Having insisted that we were human beings as opposed to property, as opposed to uh, to, to being owned by somebody. And that was one of the first crimes you know, publicly associated with blackness in this place that we know. 
call Canada that made it that black people moving through public space were already suspect, right? So if we think about that itself being a crime, the crime of insisting you're not property as being a crime, we can already see how ludicrous the concept of criminality is, first of all, but we can also see its weddedness to blackness, right? So I think that to move forward with answering your question, profiling it as self-fulfilling prophecy, if we have the idea of crime as something that black people do, of course, and send police to black neighborhoods, of course, that is where you're going to find the quote unquote crime, right? If we know that, for example, smoking weed is something that has never been harmful, but is something that has been criminalized, even historically, partially by stereotypes that attached, you know, marijuana to black people. But we know that this is a substance that smoked widely across Canadian populations. But if you go into a neighborhood where more black people live and shake down every teenager, you're, of course, going to find a certain level of quote unquote black criminals, right? But this is just uh, something that would never be applied to going to the white high schools and finding all of the dime bags that, um, in their pockets, right? So it's something that is just attached to to things that everybody does when black people do them, right? Even though we know that drug use is something that is actually uh, like empirically measurable, um, is very equivalent across racial populations. So I think that we need to really denaturalize the idea that there is such a thing as a criminal and really think about the process of criminalizing as itself a process of it making certain people criminal. And of course, who those certain people are is delineated by uh, race, by economic class, by gender, right? So we need to think about really critically, I think, the idea of what um, criminality even is because of that, because crime and blackness are so historically linked. So I think that that's really necessary, especially I think that that's also why we're seeing such um, a shift away from criminalization in this really exciting abolitionist moment that we're in, right? Saying that, of course, we need to end police. We need to end policing. And how do you do that? You do that by decriminal, in part, right? Of course, of course, there's uh, the idea of moving all funding away from policing and towards uh, safety, towards housing, towards transportation. But there's also this, this really crucial feature of it that's decriminalizing drugs, decriminalizing sex work, decriminalizing um poverty, right? Because these are all of the ways that the state has access to uh, policing us. If you make it illegal to sleep on a bench, and we know that black people are very disproportionately houseless and homeless in the cities that we live in, you're criminalizing black poverty. If we make it illegal to sleep in a tent in a park, but we don't make it that we ha live in a society that funds housing, again, you're making it possible to criminalize black people as opposed to provide like a decent and safe and healthy uh, living context for our communities. So... I went a little bit down the line with that question, but I think that's where it takes us. If we look at what profiling is and we think about what would be the opposite of that, then we think about what's the opposite of criminalizing people? What's the opposite of policing people? What's the opposite of assuming suspicion at every corner when instead we could assume a full, bountiful human life, right? Yeah, that's that's so true. And that's a big reason why that line stuck out to me. And this has been a big, like, this was just a big thing with, um, throughout reading your book, but... There were so many things, so many statements that I had like subconsciously or like I've had experiences and to have you like articulate them so profoundly, it was just very eye opening. And I think that idea of, you know, profiling and criminality, that was just a very eye opening moment for me because I've never had them um, explained and broken down like that before. If you'd like to see the artwork we're about to discuss, you'll find a link in the episode notes or you can visit artbyrobinson.com slash art is human nature. I repeat, if you'd like to follow along and see the artwork we're about to discuss, you'll find a link in the episode notes or you can visit artbyrobinson.com slash art is human nature. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
with us on the topic of racial profiling and criminality, I'd like to um, share the painting with you, get your thoughts on it. So the title for this piece is Matching Descriptions. And, you know, like your work has been extremely inspirational in regards to um, the ideas behind this piece. And I just want to, I guess, get your thoughts on it. How does it make you feel? Are there things that stand out to you in particular? Anything of that sort? Sure. Thank you so much. And I'm so honored. I am so, so honored that um, my work uh, helped inspire the the really beautiful painting series that you are doing. So thank you for that. So something that I really love about this painting, I think, is what it captures. And of course, you can tell me if I'm interpreting it wrong. But the way that I am seeing this is in one way. Um, so you have this plant over top of where this this young man's face would be. So in one way, I think what I see represented is the ways that in which to the state to even the surrounding white residents, the way that black people are interchangeable, are faceless or featureless, that one could be exchanged for the other because we all stand in for crime in a certain way. We all fit the profile, right? That's often, you know, the ways in which police will be exonerated for maiming or brutalizing or killing uh, young black people is because we fit the profile of some other idea of some, you know, some some other black person who did some other totally unrelated thing, right? But if, if, you know, I am crime. If that is who we are, then of course there's this interchangeability. So what I really see with the lack of giving these facial features is in one way a representation of, of that. But then what I really love about what you've done here is in making it a plant, is in making it the place where I can imagine the roots are going down from the top of his head and down through to the neck, we see something is growing, right? We see that there's this possibility, it engenders this life giving and affirming thing, which tells us that of course we know that as black people, we're not reducible to the ideas that our society uh, thrusts us into, to the position of blackness has nothing to do with who we are, with what we are, um, with what our capacities are, with our minds, with our spirits. That is very unrelated to, to us as black people. It's unrelated to who this young man is. So I think that the idea that from this positioning, you know, this, this de-identifying uh, thing that is occurring, we nonetheless see something beautiful is emerging from this. And in this way, we see the way that you can't actually destroy us as a people, right? You can't actually, you know, you can end our individual lives, but Black liberation has always been able to extend well beyond that. So I think what I see here is possibility, even as I see this possible eclipsing of possibility as this young man is being approached by these these officers. And I appreciate that they are also faceless in this way that stands in for the fact that it's not one bad apple, it's not one individual agent of the state, it's the state, right? It's the state itself. So I think that that uh, is also something that I see represented here. Of course, you can correct me if I'm way off base, but that's how I read this painting. That's such a fascinating interpretation. And with a lot of those things, it's completely in line with what my thinking was. But even in places where it may not have been, a big thing for me, I'm a firm believer in the idea that other people can um, teach me things about my artwork that I didn't know. And uh, with that being said, um, you definitely did that. And I had mentioned how your work was like a, a big inspiration in regards to this piece. Another thing that was a big inspiration as well, and I guess your work kind of helped me visualize and capture it in a visual manner, but um, this work was also based on uh, an experience I had that I kind of had forgotten about, or maybe it was like suppressed, like a suppressed memory. But when I was uh, 13, I was uh, I was walking with a couple of my friends and it was, I want to say not like nine-ish, nine, like nine, 9.30 PM. And we're 13 and we're on our way home 
and we saw this black car with uh, tinted windows. And we all kind of had this fear of drive-by shootings. We just happened to think like it, like it was just something that could happen at any moment, even though we were just 13. And so this one friend in particular was always um, kind of hyper aware of like, you know, strange vehicles. So they kind of pointed out this car and they said it was following us. And we didn't believe him at first, but um, we started to walk a little faster and the car matched our pace. And we decided to stop walking and the car stopped. And then we got scared and we ran. And then the car zoomed, zoomed off. And the car came around and this man jumped out the car and just proceeded to chase us. And we all ran and got split up. And then before I know it, a bunch of police cars pull up and kind of cut off my path. And I'm thrown into a police car and I'm brought to a spot where all of my friends are being searched up against a wall. And um, the police begin to search me and they look at my belongings. They, you know, they comment on how nice my phone is, you know, things like that. And then they, they bring in these two, these two men and they ask them if it was us that robbed them. And two things that stuck out to me is um, we were 13 and we were, we were visibly like boys, like, um, and I guess we matched the description of who they were looking for, even though we were kids. And that moment when, um, these gentlemen came up to us, they, I like, I like, I guess reading your book and like revisiting that situation. One thing that I, I like, I think about a lot is, um, just the power they had in that moment. And they said, no, we aren't the people they're looking for, but they could have, they could have said anything they wanted and they would have been believed and we wouldn't have been. So I just, you know, I think about like the power that they had in that situation. And I think about the outcomes, like if, um, me or one of my friends, you know, like we were so scared that we didn't comply with the police, you know, like how that could have panned out. But yeah, that personal experience was also a big inspiration behind this piece. But one thing that's, um, that's very important to me with this conversation we're having is with state violence and anti-Black racism. I'm sure you can especially speak on this, but in a lot of these conversations, it's, they're mainly focused on, um, you know, police violence with young cis Black um, men. And state violence, as I've learned, is something that is very far-reaching and, you know, like that just touches on like, you know, a little pebble of, you know, this huge monstrous issue. You know, uh, I look at um, some of the cases noted in your book and, you know, just the fact that um, a lot of the experiences of black women or queer black folk or, you know, trans black men and women and how those experiences aren't really spoken, spoken of. I was hoping um, you could kind of touch on... Um, some of these um, other forms of state violence beyond the experiences of um, cis Black men. Absolutely. And first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think what something that you're getting at, which is something that I think that a lot of non-Black people or people who don't experience policing don't understand, but, you know, 
communities that don't experience police and don't understand is exactly what I think you elevated, which is just that like any encounter is terrifying, is an experience of of terror, like of terrorizing us because you never know if there happened to be a little more trigger happy, if they happened to be a little bit more afraid that day, if those people had happened to make a different choice, the amount of just totally gratuitous violence that can happen from any possible police encounter, right? That any stop brings with it the possibility of arrest, of beating, and even death, right? We, we see this um, We see this with these like tragic and totally preventable killings of young black and black people of all ages all the time. So I guess I just really want to highlight that um, something that I just think that you, what you're telling, what you're sharing illustrates so, so clearly, which is just that it's violence to surveil black people. It's violence to stop and arrest black people. It is not only violence when we leave with bruises or broken bones, right? Because of the, you know, that that's terror inflicted on young black children on what happened to you. And I just really wanted to to speak to that, which sorry, is not the answer to your question, but it's just something that what you're sharing really, really brought up for me. So now to answer your question. Absolutely. I think that we have a kind of societal lens for making sense of the police profiling of young black um, cis men. And as we should, right? It's a really, it's a really preeminent kind of the kind of law enforcement policing that happens in our streets, that happens in white neighborhoods, that happens in black neighborhoods. This is a really like a kind of profiling that we need to see as violence, right? That we need to understand as violence, that we a violence that we need to eradicate. But something that I was trying to really draw on as well in policing black lives was to have a black feminist analysis of what policing is and the kinds of people and bodies in which policing attaches itself to. And of course, this is uh, cis young black men, but this is also, for example, trans women, black trans women, uh, black gender nonconforming people who we know, of course, are all are also subject to policing in public spaces precisely because of not coming up against the sort of white supremacist, white supremacist uh, gendered norms of what uh, we are supposed to look like. So that idea of a presence in public space is often something that is sexualized, is often something that is criminalized using things like prostitution laws, things that used to be vagrancy laws. So we see the, the criminalization, particularly of black trans life in public space in ways that I think we need to make as uh, central to our lens of policing, right? It's, even if we look to, for example, the recent really horrific um, incarceration of Mocha Dawkins, right? A black uh, trans sex worker who was incarcerated, um, you know, who was arrested and incarcerated for uh, for defending herself, right? For self-defense. I think that her case really shows the crucial ways in which if we're not lifting up and countering the violence against black trans women, it continues, you know, it justifies itself within the logics of the state because it's something that is, is out of sight and therefore is unchallenged. So that's something that I think is really crucial. I also really wanted to just look at how the law itself is both racialized and gendered in ways that we don't see if we're not looking beyond the sort of traditional prototypical target of who's imagined to be surveilled and policed. So if we look, we can actually understand policing, I would argue, as well in a way that is more thick and substantive if we look, for example, to the lives of poor Black women who we know are also policed on the street are also subject to police violence on the street, which we saw in the cases of Sophia Cook, which we saw more in the, in the late 1980s, which we saw more recently with the cases of Majisa Phillip and, and ongoing realities that are happening all the time in our cities. But we also see the way that black women are surveilled by child welfare, uh, by child and family services, right? The ways in which black families are being subject to surveillance, including what they feed their children for lunch, including the ways that they send their children dressed to school, which are even when they're just ways that are sort of more traditionally black uh, foods, types of clothing, we know that people are being surveilled, are being reported, are having black children taken 
out of their homes, right? Which of course is a violence to black women, is a violence to black children, is a violence to black communities more broadly, right? That is of course at least as egregious as the practice of carding, of stopping black people on the street and asking for IDs. But if we're not looking to the realities of poor black women, then we're not going to see this as a kind of policing. And we're also not going to see it within the scope of the kind of policing that we urgently need to put an end to. So it's, uh, it's actually in the name of really understanding the nature of policing more broadly that if we attune ourselves to the gendered ways that it takes place, we actually give ourselves a much more complex way of understanding what policing is, who it, who it affects, how it takes place. But that also gives us a much broader way that we need to think about black liberation and black freedom, right? That, of course, we need to think about the end of police, the end of policing. But if we're not expanding that scope to thinking about what's happening to black moms when they go to try to advocate for their kids in school, of what's happening to black parent, to black, to, to black moms when they're trying to parent their kids in child and family services. We need to think about ab an abolition in a broad enough scope that it can encompass the end of all kinds of surveillance and policing, which extends well beyond law enforcement. And I think that's much more clear if we have a black feminist lens. And this is somebody, you know, this is something that thinkers like Andrea Ritchie, like Beth Ritchie, um, like Mariam Kaba have, I think, done a really important job of bringing to the forefront, which is that we really need to have this kind of expansive lens if we want to have a rich and expansive liberation project and way of thinking about freedom for all of us as black folks. You answer that question like above and beyond, which is, um, which is awesome. That was something I just really wanted to have you speak on because, um, you kind of mentioned this early on, but you know, we're kind of in this time where, um, you know, like a lot of people are paying attention to what's going on and speaking out on, um, a lot of these issues, but I've noticed, you know, the conversation has been very one dimensional. So, I'm very grateful and glad that, you know, there are, you know, writers and academics like yourself, you know, Black feminists who can kind of provide this varied and like full dimensional um, outlook on um, a lot of these issues. I think it's really important. In the same kind of um, sphere, coming back to um, policing, another thing I wanted to touch on, you look at past like tragic events with um, DeAndre Campbell and Regis Korczynski Paquette. And it's very apparent that there's a very serious issue when it comes to police involvement in any mental health crisis. And I was just wondering if, if you could speak on some of the solutions and some of the ideas that people are putting forth to combat this like huge problem. And also, if you could touch on the defund the police movement and the thinking behind that as well. Sure. Um, I think that I like to think about the defund the police movement and the thinking behind it as like very expansive, probably really thinking with what I'd mentioned in my last question, in my last answer, right, which is that police and policing and surveillance happen in places well beyond just law enforcement, that it's part of the state more broadly, right? That is part of how the state functions, the state being itself anti-Black um, in, in the way that it works. So I think that I just wrote about this in a guide you can find on uh, the buildingtheworldwewant.com website, a guide called A Roadmap to Police-Free Futures in Canada. But I think that police defunding is, of course, about taking money actually just out of policing, saying, and coming from an understanding of policing as a kind of racial violence, as a kind of 
violence that has historically been act- enacted against black peoples, against indigenous peoples, uh, and understanding it as violence, then saying, how can we slowly chip away at, reduce the harms of this institution until it is no longer? And of course, to divorce policing from the idea of what safety means, right? And saying that the <laughs> policing don't, do not make us safe, but actually we need to focus on making ourselves safe uh, for real. So it's about taking money away from police and policing, but also bringing money into communities, bringing money into community safety, about into community anti-violence kinds of programs, thinking about what else it means to be safe, which of course is actually having access to safe and decent living spaces. Uh, to, to say that rather police, rather than, for example, policing homelessness, that we would actually respond by ending uh, homelessness, right? For housing people, right? That there could be an investment in actually giving people homes, access to healthy food, you know, decent free transport, as opposed to continually policing the people who uh, experience the most harms and um vulnerability and expendability that's produced by, you know, racial capitalism in the, in the kind of society that we live in today. So I think that that's part of it, that budgetary shift is not only just about, you know, reducing police budgets, but it's actually about fundamentally reorganizing our society such that, you know, public, so quote unquote, money is actually coming, uh, being used for people, the people who, who often we don't think about as the public at this time, right? But the people who actually constitute the public, Black people, Indigenous people, to say that we actually deserve safety. And the policing is not that. So what does that look like, right? So what I think, if I want to answer your question with a more... In, so that is one answer, right? I think that's sort of the theoretical lines of thought behind it. But I think we also need to think about, okay, so what does the police defunding movement look like? It looks, of course, like these budget battles that we're seeing, for example, as that launched by today, actually, in Vancouver, there's a people's budget being launched where people are uh, re- looking at what it would look like to reallocate that to municipal funding away from police and towards community safety, right? And we're seeing this happening in Montreal, um, as well as in other cities. So that's one important part of it. And also what is part of it is you know, really strong movements to decouple police and policing from the many places that they're attached to. So we've seen really great organizing by by Latin, by BLMTO and Libra Newbold of Freedom School to get police out of schools, right? To reduce, to, to remove police from schooling, uh, to end the SRO programs in the TDSB. We saw a few years ago, we're now seeing major successes for that all over the country, including Hamilton, including Vancouver, and more broadly, right? So the pushing police out of places where they're particularly and most egregiously harmful, like for black young black children, removing police from immigration, of course, is something that No Borders activists have been working on for a long time, right? To say that policing itself is already harmful. But if you're also referring police to people to immigration when they're stopped, then you're creating a whole other kind of violence, right? That links the policing and immigration systems uh, together that, of course, particularly harm Black people. So decoupling police from those places when we see moves to disarm police, when we see moves to, to demilitarize police, these are also really important parts of the movement, as is decriminalizing uh, drugs, decriminalizing sex works in decriminalizing poverty, right? So this is part of a multi-pronged movement that there are people working from on many, many fronts, I would argue, that are working to end, uh, to reduce and minimize police and policing towards towards ending them more broadly. One last question. So um, for anyone that wants to be a part of, you know, the push for, you know, social change in Canada, how can they get involved? You know, um, for anyone listening who is who's listening to this conversation and, and they're feeling very inspired and they're like, yeah, I want to um, I want to help. What are some things they can do? What are some resources that they can um, look into? I mean, I think uh, 
this is something I often just see Maryam Kaba answering this to folks that I'm like, it's the truest answer. I'm just going to say what she says, which is like, join an organization, start an organization, learn what people are doing in the neighborhood or the city that you live in and just, you know, take part. There's so much happening. You know, in Toronto, there's the ESN who's working in mutual aid with houseless people and encampments to ensure their safety and, and, and the policing of people who are homeless working towards providing, you know, pro- providing <laughs> providing housing, right? Providing free housing. There's There's... Migrant justice work happening all over this country, working for an end to border controls and end to deportations of people who don't have, you know, access to the privileges of citizenship. There is amazing anti-policing work happening in every city that I'm aware of. I would say it's like never been an easier or more exciting time to really just uh, join in, to join in on any part of the movement that speaks to you personally. And I think that we're in a moment where the public is much more open than they've ever been. We see that, you know, more than half of the Canadian population supports or somewhat supports the idea of defunding police, right? This means we're in a really opportune time uh, where I think it's not just optimism that says, like, we are really in a moment when we can affect change in a serious way if we're really willing to collectively commit ourselves to that. So on that note, I just want to say again, thank you, Robin, so much for taking the time to speak with me. Really means a lot. Yeah, no, just thank you. And thank you for all your great work as well. Thank you so, so much for having me and for all the work that you do. I really appreciate it very much. If you'd like to learn more about the topics explored in this episode, be sure to check out buildingtheworldwewant.com, which is an educational platform started by Robin and Pascal Diverless. On this platform, you can find resources, monthly public panels, and much more. Also, be sure to give Robin's book, Policing Black Lives, a read and be on the lookout for her next book in collaboration with fellow writer Leanne Simpson titled Rehearsals for Living, which is set to release in 2022. This concludes Art is Human Nature. To see the artwork for this episode, visit artbyrobinson.com slash artisthumannature. Until next time.